think again. So coming home, it was, it was just kind of weird. I don't know, it just felt like things had changed and that the mission wasn't yet finished. I wanted to go back and our unit wasn't deploying for any time in the near future and uh, oddly enough went to a job fair and they happened to be there. He came home and I had moved to the city and he was just kind of working retail and he felt so lost. At that point, he was like, gosh, you know, do I go back to school? You know, I'm so much older than most college students. As my time in Guatemala City was coming to an end, my enlistment was also coming to an end. So I had to make a decision whether I wanted to stay in the Marine Corps, get out and pursue something else. One of the, one of the things that I wanted to, to do was to get over to Iraq and Afghanistan um, after 9-11 and after the invasion of Iraq, I always felt like it was my duty to go over there and help serve my country and, and contribute. Every time I'd come home with my young daughter, it was hard because she didn't know me. I'd be gone for months and months at a time, and I'd come home and it'd be like starting over every time. You know, all you want to do is love on them, but they don't know you, and all they want is the, you know, their mama. He was like, yeah, I'm not doing this. i got to find something. I've got to find a purpose. And he was even thinking about re-enlisting. Billy was the one who introduced him to Blackwater. And we thought, hey, man, have you heard of this company, Blackwater? When he saw this, and he was like, this will be perfect for me. If I do this, because you won't have to worry about working, you can just focus on finishing your degree, and, and we'll be set. We can save money for a house. It'll, it's the perfect solution to everything. And so I agreed. The main thing people want to know when I tell them about Nisser Square is this. Why did four decorated combat veterans go and join an outfit like Blackwater Worldwide? When I first visited them in prison, I wanted to know that too. So this episode is about just that. The incremental steps that lead to a choice that lands you on the front page of every newspaper on the planet. And ultimately, prison. I'm Gina Keating, an investigative journalist. And I'm joined by my friend and co-writer, Michael Flaherty. And this is Raven 2-3, Presumption of Guilt. First of all, Mike, it's important to understand what Blackwater was and what it wasn't. Blackwater delivered supplies and protected high-value diplomats in war zones. That's it. It was not a mercenary army with some secret CIA mission, as some of the less responsible members of the media have written. But here's the thing. At a time when 50,000 U.S. troops went into battle with no bulletproof vests, antiquated weapons, and driving Humvees with no armor, Blackwater men and their cool toys probably looked like something out of a Marvel movie. Well... That analogy is actually not that far off. 
and you can extend it beyond their appearance. Like a lot of Marvel superheroes, Blackwater was not always appreciated by the traditional crime-fighting forces. They were governed by different rules, and their pay, at least for their time in theater, was greater than what the American military earned. The press tried to present them as rogue mercenaries or guns for hire. This was not only dangerously untrue, it neglected to mention how much the nature of fighting the war in Iraq was different from every other war. Almost half of the Americans involved in the war overseas were private military contractors working for companies like Blackwater. That's one out of two, hardly a small, mysterious division. But Blackwater quickly separated itself from the pack by developing a reputation as a company that would take any job, particularly the ones that were the most dangerous. This gave Eric Prince the opportunity to generate hundreds of millions of dollars of additional revenue for Blackwater. It also gave him the chance to improvise, which he loved. So he bought Little Bird helicopters from Spain that could navigate city streets more easily to rescue soldiers in urban firefights. He equipped Texas crop dusters to deliver supplies to troops pinned down on the mountains of Afghanistan. When we spoke to Prince, he admitted that he rarely turned down any mission the government was willing to pay a private military contractor to carry out. You know, we started Blackwater as a, like I said, as a training vehicle to grow into the security and logistics and aviation support that we did. Most of the military loved it. If we tended to outcompete or outperform parts of the military by showing up uh, and doing the job with a higher reliability or a higher tempo for a lower cost, obviously the ones that were shown up were not pleased to be uh, to have competition um, showing how to do something cheaper, better, or faster. By 2006, Blackwater pulled down over a billion dollars in military-related contracts for an expanding range of services. Prince was launching new businesses all the time, like some Silicon Valley serial entrepreneur. There was Blackwater Lodge and Training Center, Blackwater Armor and Targets, Blackwater Canine, Blackwater Maritime Security Solutions, Blackwater Armored Vehicle, and even Blackwater Airships. What's an airship? It's a blimp. That's right, at one point in time, Blackwater thought it would be a good idea to get into the blimp business. And believe it or not, that was not their worst brand extension or new line of business. No, that dubious distinction goes to Blackwater the first-person shooter that was created for the Xbox 360. Rated T for Teen. Agile 22, secure convoy area. Blackwater wasn't alone at the trough. There were about 200 foreign and domestic private military companies operating in Iraq. They employed an estimated 180,000 people. I got those numbers from the Defense Department and the Cato Institute. The contractors often floated among the companies. They changed jobs to follow the contracts awarded by the government. And as the American public and press began to wake up to the fact that the government needed these companies to prop up the war, the PMCs became notorious, almost in inverse proportion to how venerated the troops were even though these were the same people fighting the same war and being paid by the same government. Blackwater was performing the most difficult, high-profile tasks in the country. Uh, we were protecting the most uh, al-Qaeda-worthy targets, and those being um, diplomats and uh, visiting congressional officials, even respective presidents of the United States who visited Iraq or Afghanistan. 
we are the only ones with our own air wing. We had significant presence, but there was many, many thousands of other armed security contractors from all over the world doing logistic support for the military or for their own countries or allied countries that were there. The sad thing is Blackwater kind of came Kleenex, right? The, um, the generic term for an armed security contractor and dozens of times we'd be called and said, Hey, some of your guys got hit here or some of them were involved in a shooting there. We'd, uh, we'd go back to whoever called us and say, well, that wasn't our people. In the 2008 presidential elections, candidates Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton vied for the mantle of who despised contractors more. Clinton said she would sponsor legislation to ban the use of Blackwater and other private military contractors in Iraq. Obama wouldn't rule out the use of contractors, but said the government needed a way to hold them accountable for war zone crimes. Neither of those things happened. Private military contractors would proliferate in Iraq and continue to enjoy the same legal protections as American troops. But as Nasser Square would prove, they were caught in a legal gray area when it came to the judicial system. Mike, after the Nasser Square incident, politicians and the media often use the word mercenary to describe Blackwater contractors. But let's take a look at how a 1977 Geneva Convention protocol describes a mercenary. Now, as we go through these, remember, All six of these criteria must be met for a combatant to be considered a mercenary. Not one out of six or three out of six. You have to bat a thousand. So let's go over them. A mercenary is specially recruited locally or abroad in order to fight in an armed conflict. The Blackwater men were recruited in the US, that's true, but not to fight in an armed conflict. They were providing security and occasionally rescuing American troops and diplomats. During the first Nisor Square trial, Gordon England, the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Defense, testified that the Blackwater contractors were not on a defense-related mission in Iraq. A mercenary does, in fact, take a direct part in the hostilities. Again, no. Not unless they were defending themselves. Attacks on American troops and contractors happened, on average, 180 times a day across Iraq in the summer of 2007. The insurgency got very creative with bombs. There were bombs in cars, bombs on women, bombs on children, even bombs inside watermelons. So if coming in contact with bombs is translated to taking a direct part in hostilities, then maybe. But I think we all know that's not the spirit of this criteria. A mercenary is motivated to take part in the hostilities essentially by the desire for private gain and, in fact, is promised by or on behalf of a party to the conflict material compensation substantially in excess of that promised or paid to combatants of similar ranks and functions in the armed forces of that party. In most of the articles that we read, there was all kinds of ink spilled about the amount of money the contractors were pulling down. But the going rate for a contractor was 500 bucks a day and a round-trip ticket to Iraq. But contractors had to buy their own health insurance, life insurance, pension, even their own body armor. So when you factor in military benefits, they were making about the same as a regular infantryman. Again, no. A mercenary is neither a national of a party to the conflict nor a resident of territory controlled by a party to the conflict. 
The overwhelming majority of contractors were former American veterans, and the United States was most certainly a party to the conflict in Iraq. So, no and no. A mercenary is not a member of the armed forces of a party to the conflict. Well, depending on your definition, we could have our first yes. They were not, at that time, members of the United States armed forces or Iraqi militias. A mercenary has not been sent by a state that is not a party to the conflict on official duty as a member of its armed forces. Well, Blackwater had a contract directly with the United States State Department, so they were certainly sent by a state that was a party to the conflict. Where are we at with our score? So the Blackwater men met exactly one of the six Geneva Convention criteria for defining mercenaries. And remember, they had to meet all six to be considered mercenaries. Again, so irritating that the journalists writing about this did not take the time to look this up. Words are powerful. Accuracy matters. And later on in the podcast, we will see the devastating effect of the media's inaccuracies and general laziness. Now that we know what a mercenary is or is not, let's talk about what it takes to join a private military company. As we mentioned in our last episode, Eric Prince built the Blackwater Training Ground in the Great Dismal Swamp in Moyoc, North Carolina in 1997. Moyoc was run by ex-Special Forces, and it was a G.I. Joe's dream house. This is Evan Liberty describing what he saw when he arrived in Moyoc in early 2005. Moyoc is a huge training facility that Blackwater had in the swamps in North Carolina. My first experience in, in Moyoc came in the beginning of 2005 when I went to do my Blackwater training to go to Iraq. My immediate impressions of the facility was I was I was impressed at the, the scale of everything. They had a driving track, they had multiple ranges, uh, rifle ranges, pistol ranges, they had live fire shoot houses where guys could go in and practice their close quarters battle. They had, um, they even had a mock portion of a, of a ship on a man-made pond that special forces teams could, could practice on. Yes, that's right. Eric Prince built a pirate ship to practice waterborne attacks. This place is a wonderland for special forces types. Here are Evan Liberty and Paul Slough talking about their training. There was only maybe 20 guys or less in my class, and I, and I was immediately uh, impressed by the, the quality of guys that were in the class. We had a number of Navy SEALs. We had some guys that were special forces. Of course, I was one of the youngest ones, only 22 years old, and I was just really impressed with the, with the facility as a whole and the quality of people in my class. In Moyoc, it was, it was really squared away. Everything was... Uh, really scheduled. Everything was observed heavily by the cadre there. Everybody was really helpful and wanted to see people succeed. Being able to train at that level around some guys that had been to top-tier programs and, and people who were really squared away, had their head on straight, were really focused on the mission and, and ready to help the next man get there as well. Dustin Hurd arrived in Moyoc first in late 2004. Evan Liberty followed in early 2005, Nick Slatton in 2006, and Paul Slough was last in in 2007. 
In the spring of 2007, all four men were assigned to a tactical support team of 19 men and four armored personnel carriers. It was codenamed Raven 2-3. Another ex-soldier from Southern California had also made the cut and arrived in Baghdad in 2007 to be assigned to Raven 2-3. His name was Jeremy Ridgeway, and he had a secret. This is Paul Slough remembering his first impressions of his teammate, Jeremy Ridgeway. I remember, remember wondering why he never worked out or PT'd like the rest of us. It just kind of seemed disorganized and disheveled and, and not, really, not really on point. Being on point often meant the difference between life and death in Baghdad in 2007. Every contractor I spoke to for this story, about a dozen, said the mission was much more dangerous than their military tours. Here are Evan Liberty, Dustin Hurd, and Nick Slatton talking about what it was like to live in the international zone, also known to the diplomats, soldiers, and contractors who live there as the Green Zone. Well, the, the Green Zone is a, is a large area in the middle of Baghdad that was that housed a lot of military personnel. There was different military bases in the Green Zone, as well as, as the United States Embassy and other foreign uh, government buildings. And it was considered um, relatively safe compared to the Red Zone, which would be anything outside the Green Zone. But as most people know, just because it was called the Green Zone didn't mean it was safe. We would uh, frequently, frequently get rocket attacks or, or mortar attacks. You could never let your guard down. We went from catching a couple every once in a while to where I heard reports of some nights that we took almost a hundred in between rockets and mortars. People who've never been to Baghdad probably think that the green zone is safe. It wasn't. There were many nights when rockets came in and a lot of people were killed. So you pretty much accepted death. It felt like we were always working because we were a tactical support team. Anytime there was an emergency situation, whether it was combat related out in the red zone or whether somebody had got hit by a rocket attack in the green zone at night, we would uh, be called out to render aid. A day in the life of a Blackwater military contractor started with an intelligence briefing in the Patriot parking lot in the green zone. The contractors studied a big laminated map of Baghdad each morning to learn about hotspots, places where intelligence analysts thought there could be imminent attacks. Then they plotted several separate routes to their jobs that day. Here's Blackwater's intelligence analyst, Miashka Lasik Johnson, testifying at the first Nisor Square trial. Mia, as she was known, described the threats that teams like Raven 23 had to anticipate every moment of every day. This is an actress reading from Mia's testimony. It was probably the beginning of 2007, and then going into the summer, there was a significant increase of attacks. There was a lot of sectarian violence. I mean, there were some times in the paper that likened it to almost a civil war between the two sects. The two sects Mia is talking about are the Sunni and Shiite militias. There were a number of rocket attacks and a very big increase in V-beads at the time. I would typically include the type of attack, where it was located, if there were any particular tactics that were important to that attack, and usually the BDA, the number of wounded, the types of damage to vehicles, things of that nature. 
I wanted the teams to be aware of what they were up against when they went out into that red zone. If a principal team is going to be attacked, it's very important for everyone to know what the tactics are of that group. Are there likely to be second, you know, follow on type of attacks? Mia also provided something called a be on the lookout or bolo list. This list is probably one of the most important elements of the Nasser Square shootings. It goes to the men's intent to commit a crime. Keep that in mind. The military, they did the same thing, and they actually kept a running list of all the vehicles that had been mentioned in recent threat reporting, such as, you know, an ambulance with license plate one, two, three, or, you know, a pickup truck with a red stripe. They would keep that list running until they had confirmation one of those vehicles had detonated. And then usually it would update and say, this vehicle has either been found or detonated. The Bolo List vehicles were occasionally used to kidnap people, but Mia was much more worried about VBIEDs, vehicle-borne improvised explosive devices, also known as car bombs. So armed with that knowledge, plus a handgun, automatic rifles, belt-fed machine guns, smoke grenades, and rocket launchers, the three teams on duty plunged into their missions. That was ferrying State Department officials to meetings with their Iraqi counterparts in the Red Zone. To a civilian like me, and for that matter, anyone that wasn't in Iraq at the time, that sounds like a lot of firepower. That also sounds like an unnecessary show of force. But here's Robert Ford, who was, at one time, the second in command at the United States Embassy in Iraq. In his interview with Gina, Mr. Ford described what it was like to travel through Baghdad as an American diplomat. You have these huge American vehicles, these Humvees and these mine-resistant vehicles, MRVs, and they're just gigantic. They're like, I mean, a Humvee is like a a large minibus, and these MRVs uh, and MRAPs, um, they were like the size of a city bus, and they had right-of-way, and so when you saw them coming down the street, they were extremely intimidating, and I think partly by intent for security reasons. So um, it just it added an air of abnormality to um, to the traffic, and then the standard procedure. And this is not Blackwater's fault. I don't blame them at all. This is what the State Department diplomatic security wanted, and I could never get it changed. They wanted us to go in these, you know, very visible convoys, um, and and they would just beep and honk, and they would. They would literally jam people in the roads and get them out of the way. I don't, I mean, it wasn't routine to ram, but um, they would just make life miserable. So the irregular Iraqi driver, you had to like get over and get out of the way as we zoomed through. So it was exceptionally disruptive. And that had been going on long before this Nassau Square incident. So I cannot say that we were particularly popular. Um, as a, with our military forces and our black water and all. In 2006, the Bush administration admitted that its policy in Iraq was failing. The country was slipping into civil war. There was a lot of talk about whether sending more troops to tamp down the violence would make Iraqi hatred of Americans worse. But in the end, President George W. Bush decided to send a surge of 20,000 more troops to Iraq and a last-ditch bid to get the country under control. To get an idea of what the situation was like on the ground, we spoke to Eric Parker. Eric is what you would call a total ass kicker. 
He served in the U.S. Army Special Ops, and he was a member of Blackwater's Raven 22 Tactical Support Team. This is how Eric described what it was like to be in the front lines in Baghdad. 2007 was a very, very hard year. I mean, it started out hard. Um, from January 23rd, 2007, we lost five guys um, from an attack on a venue. And, um, you know, a little bird helicopter was shot down to where we had to go out and search for those guys and recover their remains to where we got ambushed. Um, it didn't end there. I mean, uh, right after that, the uh, Central Railroad uh, got hit on uh, uh, venue with uh, uh, a complex attack uh, to where one of our guys uh, ended up being shot with a 50 cal, got hit through a wall and went into his abdomen, um, which luckily he made a recovery from. Um, but even just the, the week leading up to September 16th, I mean, September 9th, uh, Adamant City Hall, Amadant City Hall uh, got hit. Uh, where a grenade was thrown over, which started up a fight where all the TSD teams were having to push out, and they actually locked down a traffic circle right down there so the team could uh, exfil. A couple days later, one of the tactical support teams got hit with the uh, EFP, which is an explosively formed projectile, which basically there's not much that can stop it. Um, It's a molten, think about a molten lava bullet that will go right through six inches of steel. Um, took out one of their vehicles uh, in which we had to roll to support them, um, which theirs ended up in a firefight. Um, So there were a lot of different things uh, that were going on. Adding to the chaos was the fact that it was impossible to tell Iraqi police from insurgents dressed as Iraqi police. Here's Robert Ford talking about the confusion that situation created. Iraqi uniforms were available on the black market and that gets into your corruption issue. So were there insurgents dressed as Iraqi police? Absolutely. But I am very hard-pressed to think of an occasion when we had Iraqi police themselves fire on Americans in like 2007. Well, 2007, I wasn't there. 2008. Boy, I can't think of an instance. And that I would remember because that would have really changed the way we... We looked at what was safe and what wasn't safe. So, Gina, it doesn't take long to review the events of 2007 to realize that Baghdad was a terrifying place. In fact, it was the most dangerous city on Earth. Here's Robert Ford again, describing the collision course that the U.S. and the Iraqi government were on as the bloody fall of 2007 approached. We'll close out with these words from Ambassador Ford until our next episode. I think this is an important bit of context to understand. The American forces, both um, U.S. military, predominantly U.S. military, but like this in the Source Square incident, we killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Iraqi civilians over the years. And Iraqis aren't stupid. I mean, they knew this. And uh, it was done with a sort of impunity in a place that, you know, family is is a huge deal. I mean, it's a huge deal in the United States. We have here in the United States a sort of a individual, you know, self-fulfillment and self-expression. We don't have that in Iraqi culture. You know, you're part of the family and you, you do what the family expects, and et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, this was a hugely sensitive issue, the way the Americans... Um, 
reacted, armed Americans reacted with Iraqis. So there's that. And I don't blame Blackwater for that, but it's context that aggravated the, this situation within the source square. It's sort of like all this pent-up dissatisfaction erupted. Raven 2-3 is a production of Think Again Studios. It's written by Gina Keating and Mike Flaherty. Our producers are Ashton Smith, Gina Keating, and Mike Flaherty. Executive producers are Chai Ling, Lindsay Fellows, and Valerie McGowan. Mitchell Weinbaum edited this episode, and he also serves as our associate producer, along with Kyle Hartford and Tina Graff. Lindsay Fellows and Aaron Fullen supervise the music. Our theme song is performed by Chloe Caroline. Thanks to Anne and Neil Corkery for their kindness and generosity. Finally, we owe a debt to our men and women in uniform. Thank you for defending our freedom so that strangers may one day enjoy them as well. For more information about this podcast, go to thinkagain.me. There you can find additional research and primary resources regarding the case of Raven 2-3. You can learn about future episodes and receive updates as events continue to evolve. You can also learn more about our future projects, as well as award-winning films, music, and books created by our team. Thanks to everyone who donated so much of your time and talent to this passion project.